Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Jake Taylor, the Chief Executive Officer of Farnham Street Investments. Jake has been a previous guest on The Good Life as part of the Decision Making Mastermind Group. And in this episode, Jake breaks down Warren Buffett's latest letter to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. Jake is an incredibly knowledgeable investor, as you'll see, and he follows Berkshire carefully. So he's familiar with the company and he brings unique insight into interpreting Buffett's letter and his message to the wider investing community. Those Buffett fanboys out there will recognize that Jake's investment company, Farnham Street, is named after the street in Omaha, where you will find the address of Berkshire Hathaway and a few miles down the road, Buffett's home address or residence. So Jake knows his man. As many of you know, this show grew out of my interest in value investing and in helping others apply the principles of value investing to our lives. Buffett's annual letter is always full of wisdom and Jake helps us unpack this year's edition so we can get the most out of it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jake as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Jake Taylor. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well-lived. Jake Taylor, welcome to The Good Life. Hey, Sean. Always a pleasure to uh, reconnect with you. It's great to have you back. And the topic today is the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Letter to Shareholders 2020. Just came out last Saturday, February 27th. Maybe you could help us put this letter in context, what it means to the value investing community. Warren is 90 now. He's been doing this letter, I believe, every year since 1965. Berkshire. And then he has his partnership letters that date back before that. But I have learned a tremendous amount of information and knowledge about investing and value investing from Warren's letters over the years. Do you want to just maybe put it in context for what it means to to you or the community? Yeah. I mean, this last letter to me was a master's class in subtlety and optimism and really taking the high road, right? Like there's you can make the argument. I think there was a lot of people who were looking for Mr. Buffett to come in this year and really like bring down a lot of some of the behavior that we're seeing, right? Like maybe some speculative frenzy that he would chide people for, maybe, I don't know, maybe SPACs and things like that. Like there's just, there's a fair amount of, of things that are maybe closer to the line and not playing center court as much as he would probably prefer. But we didn't really get any of that called out by name. And but if you look closely and you, if you understand the way that that Mr. Buffett writes, there's never a word that's an accidental word. Every single word is nuanced and chosen for a reason. And so you, there are lots of little clues inside that he's he's sort of calling things out, but he's not really calling them out specifically by name enough, unless you're really paying attention. Yeah, I agree. And we're going to get into that. He gets into a section called The Tale of Two Cities. He tells some stories about America that I think are the counter to some of that speculative behavior. 
And some of that behavior we're seeing in the markets, which is, you know, maybe on the line or very near the line or crossing the line of what he would consider to be a, a way to make money with integrity. So the very first page of every Berkshire letter is this table of numbers. And it goes back to 1965. And it is the right now, this year, in the last, I think, couple of years, it's been the per share market value of Berkshire compared to the S&P 500 with dividends. Uh, in the past, it's been the book value. He made a switch a few years ago because book value, in his opinion, was not really measuring appropriately the value in the company that it had in the past. Yeah, I kind of miss the book value, the growth of book value, not necessarily because it's it has decayed probably in its relevance to intrinsic value for Berkshire. I mean, anytime you buy that many private companies and you're, you know, depreciating assets the way that they are and reinvesting, you know, it's not quite like marking the market, right? Like there's the accounting can decay and and that's okay. Any good analyst who's looking at it needs to make adjustments, make their own adjustments. But I liked having book value as a as sort of a starting point and a, a place to remind people that it is about the the growth inside the company and not what the market is telling you. By removing that book value, it, to me, it was sort of like taking an anchor away that that had previously tried to focus you on, listen, look at the business results. Don't just look at what the stock price has done over the last year, which I think he would probably say is the right way to be thinking about it. Yeah. And he works hard and Charlie works hard at trying to keep the stock price within the realm of reflecting the business reality of Berkshire. They've talked in the past about not wanting the stock price to get out of whack as far as the intrinsic value of the company. And they do not talk up their book. In fact, at times they've said, I think this is overvalued. I wouldn't buy it and things like that. So as long as the stock price stays within a certain parameter of the actual business value, I think we can look at it, but we also have to take that into consideration that Mr. Market could be irrational. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that they're, you know, they've always been partnership minded when it comes to their shareholders. And whether that's because they ran partnerships before taking over a public company, whether it's because it's just kind of the right thing to do, I'm not sure what the, how I would classify, you know, between those two things. But that partnership mindset then makes you think about your, both your existing shareholders, as well as the incoming and outgoing shareholders and how are they being treated. So the closer that you can have your stock price trading at intrinsic value, the less that your group of partners can take advantage of each other buying and selling. And you want them to get a fair deal coming in and leaving, right? Because you don't, you don't know the circumstances of the shareholder of why they need to, maybe they need liquidity for something important, whether it's Maybe they need a surgery or a, a chair, make a charitable contribution. And maybe the incoming, if they pay too high of a price, they're going to get a pretty lousy ride potentially. So if you want to try to treat people as fairly as you can, one way of doing that as a, and I think it's an, a very admirable thing for a, a public company management is to really think hard about their stock price and not try to advantage one group of shareholders over another. In fact, he talks about five different categories of shareholders later in the in the letter, which we're going to get into, where he digs in on that point a little bit further. Right at the beginning, 
he talks about the earnings, and I, I believe just about every letter starts with the earnings. I'd have to go back and, and look. He mentions that the net earnings for the company are $42.5 billion, but he very quickly points out that these fall into four different buckets. They're quite different. We need to think about them in different ways. $21.9 billion in operating earnings. By the way, they fell by 9%. $4.9 billion in realized gains. 26.7 from the increase in unrealized gains and then an 11 point or sorry an 11 billion dollar loss from a write down. Let's go through each of these real quickly and just kind of break these down. So the operating earnings they fell but he also says that they're the most important earnings. That's what shareholders should be keen on even if they're not the largest like they are this year they're the largest of those four buckets but they're always going to be he says, count the most, even in periods when they are not the largest. So yeah, that's definitely a change over time as Berkshire has gotten more private companies inside of it that have gotten bigger. You know, BNSF and BHE. Uh, so those Burlington Northern, the railroad, and then Berkshire Hathaway Energy, the, which used to be Mid-American. Both of those are, are good-sized companies and they live inside of Berkshire now. And so their results will dictate a lot of that operating earnings number. So as they've grown in prominence and size, they become a more material part of Berkshire itself. And then obviously the biggest thing is their insurance operations. So that's, that goes into that first bucket of operating income. How those three do will drive a big, big part of the results of Berkshire's growth of intrinsic value. Then the $4.9 billion in realized gains is selling off, I would assume, some of their marketable securities or complete businesses that they have complete control over. The $26.7 billion in increase from unrealized gains. So that would be their, the marketable securities that have increased in value. And this number can move up and down wildly in any given quarter. He talked about this at the annual shareholders meeting to be careful he really wants to get out of in front of maybe new investors that aren't as sophisticated about understanding the earnings that they shouldn't put too much credence in the unrealized gains because they might be up one quarter if the market's up, they might be down. And in the short term, the market's a voting machine, but in the long term, it's a weighing machine, he likes to say. And so over time, he's confident that these securities will increase in value and that we should be thinking long-term. But when we look in the short-term, we could have something like this, a $26.7 billion unrealized gain, which may or may not reflect the, the actual gain in intrinsic value for those companies over that period. Right. And I think if you're doing an analysis of Berkshire is to make some adjustments there and, and probably normalize a little bit some of the gains and losses uh, of the individual companies inside, you know, for so for something like Apple, which is a very large material part of, you know, they own 5% of the company, the entire Apple company. So what Apple does, the stock price will, will change their headline earnings number quite a bit at Berkshire, right? And if so, if you're only looking at that top, top number, you may bake some things into there and you're missing a lot of the nuance of what's happening. And so for whatever reason, who knows? But if you felt like Apple was had kind of gotten ahead of itself a little bit, you know, I think it's up to roughly 35 times earnings uh, at the moment. Whereas I think when they first bought it, you know, it was probably in the 12 to 15 times earnings range. So you've seen an incredible amount of multiple expansion in Apple. 
Now, whether that persists or not is open to debate, but the the market price running ahead it has definitely pushed up what that number is in the unrealized gains and losses account for Berkshire. And I think both Buffett and Munger were critical of that accounting change that happened a few years ago where we've started doing now mark to market within the financials that way. It used to be you just carried it as an unrealized gain on your balance sheet, but you didn't run it through your income statement like that. Yeah. And now that it is running through the income statement, it hits the net earnings, the net income. And I like the idea of normalizing it. And by that, you mean maybe we don't take the Apple stock at 12 times PE, but maybe you take it at 20 and just readjust it to something like that, right? Somewhere in between 12 and 35. That's probably prudent if you believe in reversion to the mean at all. I've been quite wrong to believe in reversion to the mean for the last five years. We've had a lot of non- mean reverting data sets that, yes. that go against base rates. But I think that's not been the way to bet historically. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. So Jake, the fourth bucket is an $11 billion loss from a write down. And that I believe is almost all attributed to the precision cast parts acquisition. Is that right? So the math on that, like they bought precision in 2016 and they paid $38 billion enterprise value, uh, most of that being equity. There was a little bit of debt that they took over. And when they bought it, they bought it for 20 times net operating after tax. No pat is a common way of measuring. And that was actually, it was 25 times the average of the last five years. So $10 billion write down brings you down to a, call it like a $28 billion carrying value roughly. And that gets you into about the 10 times enterprise value to, to earnings or EBIT. And that's typically what he's been willing to pay for things is around a 10 times multiple. So in this instance, he overpaid somewhat and he knew it, right? Like he, that's what he admitted had happened. Like he overpaid for the business. He, he anticipated growth that didn't really materialize. And actually, if anything, like it went from $2.8 billion in earnings when they bought it to actually down to like 650 million last year. So he had a, a and granted, like that's, that's probably as bad as it's going to get, right? For this company who makes very precision, like fine-tuned aerospace equipment and, and parts, right? And when you have seat miles fall the way that they did during a global pandemic, like, yeah, of course, a business like that is going to probably have a hard time. So, but it doesn't mean that he didn't stretch a little bit in paying for it. And then therefore, this is the problem with overpaying is that sometimes bad things happen and and then it comes back to bite you in the butt, right? And that's that's what, it's still a, probably a great business in general. One thing I really liked about what he did there was like he took 100% of the blame and said it was, no one misled him. No one tried to, you know, tell him it was going to be better than it was. He simply overpaid for it, was a little bit overly optimistic in what he thought the business could do. Uh, He praised management for working just as hard as they did before when it was, when things were going well. And he said it was all his fault. And I think like, that's a really good leadership lesson. That's the opposite of throwing your team under the bus, right? Or blaming your problems on things like COVID or unforeseen instances that pandemics that materialized that you weren't anticipating these black swans. He doesn't mention any of that. He just says, I overpaid for the business. In fact, 
the words he used, he says, I was right in concluding that PCC would, over time, earn good returns on the net tangible assets deployed in its operations. I was wrong, however, in judging the average amount of future earnings. And that's what, exactly what you're talking about there, the, the growth he needed. He was projecting growth into the future to justify the, the multiple, and it wasn't there. And when you, I think that's a really good point, Jake. When you make an acquisition or when you purchase any security and you've got you're expecting any high growth, any Anything. asset. Yeah. And you're expecting high growth to support that valuation. If something goes wrong, it's going to hit the value of the asset. And that's gets right to margin of safety. The margin of safety that I guess Mr. Buffett thought he had on this investment wasn't there. Yeah. I think the margin of safety that probably he was leaning on was the quality of the business and the management. And he wasn't necessarily wrong. Like, I think it's terrific business and probably like exceptional management. But there are other things that can happen that, that really you just don't have any control over and you can't predict. And that's where the price that you pay ultimately always matters. And this is not like unreasonable behavior, but it's just a, a human tendency. When you get into the long teeth of a, of a bull market, you will see valuation as one of the things that's talked about of an investment pitch further and further back in the conversation, right? Business quality, the growth potential, what it could turn into, all those things become a bigger and bigger part of the conversation. And then as a little addendum, it's like, oh yeah, and by the way, uh, here's the valuation, right? Like, (laughs) whereas, you know, if you go back to 2009 or other time periods where people were scared like valuation was the first thing that you would talk about because you you couldn't depend on business quality as readily. Like it wasn't as obvious. Like we had, you know, it seemed like oh here's a real estate company. These they make all kinds of money. Look up through t- from 2000 to 2007, right? But then oh man, that kind of blew up. Uh, things bad things can happen, right? And so the quality, I feel like has has taken over and dominates the conversation now. And not that there aren't a lot of great high quality businesses out there. Like there are, but it's just the conversation around the price that you're paying for them has has been muted now and <laughs> and tends to be more of an afterthought. Uh, and that historically is is probably where you can run into some problems. Yeah. I mean, Tesla is a good example of that right now. It's like, it's a story. It's a narrative. You don't hear a lot about justification of the, the fundamentals. You know, another area where it was sort of refreshing to see Buffett just take responsibility was where he said he has two goals each year to increase operating earnings and to purchase a large favorably suited company. He failed in both. So he just sort of comes out and says, I didn't make the big purchase and earnings went down. Again, he doesn't blame anyone but himself. But he does say that Berkshire was able to increase per share intrinsic value by both retaining earnings and repurchasing about 5% of the shares. And that's big. Do you, do you want to talk about that? <clears throat> yeah, for sure. So he, he says that he failed on that front. And I would actually argue that maybe he didn't. He bought back roughly $25 billion worth of a great company, right? He purchased $25 billion worth of a great company. It happened to be the company that he's in charge of. So he made a very large purchase of a company. It just, you don't think about it that way typically, right? When you're just doing share buybacks. So I would say that he checked that box this last year and he bought a, a really terrific company at a pretty favorable, pretty reasonable price given the quality of the assets. 
by my calculations, I might be a little off on this, but I think he paid roughly like 1.25-ish price to book for Berkshire. And that's, you know, I think if you're a cap allocator, when you're thinking about doing share buybacks, you should be thinking that you're buying a part of your company. Like you're buying your assets. What are you willing to pay for your assets? So I would say, I don't think it's false modesty or anything um, because people are expecting the big elephant gun acquisition, right? Like they want to see him buy a $50 billion company or something. But he did half of that this year. And that's a, it's a big number. I mean, it sort of gets, I know that a lot of numbers now when we start talking about trillions and you know, there's billions of dollars floating around. Like billion used to be a number that you didn't really even talk about that much. Uh, but now it's like, oh, billion, that's nothing, right? But $25 billion is still a very material amount of money. So to his credit, like he made a very, I think, accretive purchase of a business this last year and paid, I think, a pretty reasonable price for it. That's a really good point, Jake. And I think 5% is a pretty significant number too. When you think about percentages of buybacks for Berkshire and what traditionally... Warren and Charlie have been willing to do. Sure. So he owns 5% of Apple and he bought 5% of Berkshire this year. That's, I mean, it's, it's comparable thinking. So then Buffett goes into a discussion about marketable securities, the marketable securities that Berkshire owns, and he calls them a collection of businesses. And that's really a fundamental value investing mindset is to think about marketable securities as owning a business, not just owning the stock, but owning the businesses. And he mentions that under GAAP accounting rules that Berkshire really only gets to report the dividends that were paid to Berkshire from these collection of businesses that Berkshire owns or partially owns. The retained earnings at the companies at these companies is not recorded. And Buffett says, I love this quote, he says, what's out of sight should not be out of mind. And he's just reminding the shareholders that there's some other earnings out there that are compounding. They may not be showing up in the financial statements, but they're out there and they are part of the intrinsic value of this company. Yeah, I think it's one of the smartest things that he talks about is this, this idea of look-through earnings. So, And it's easier to imagine when you have a huge portfolio like he does and you can look and see, oh, he owns almost, what, 20%, I think, or maybe a little less of, of American Express. So then you look and see, okay, they earned X last year. If he had 20% ownership, like that X times 20% is his share of the earnings of American Express. Now, when you're in a 20% range, it, it kind of makes more intuitive sense. Like you're the business owner and you own 20% of it. However, I think that same construct fits for you, even if you own two thousandths of, uh, of American Express or less. And you should look through to see the exact same amount of earnings that you own as well. I think that's a really healthy exercise is to take your entire portfolio and look, look through to the earnings times the, your ownership percentage to see, well, I've got my little collection of businesses. This is the empire that I've built within my portfolio. What did my empire do last year? What is my share of that empire? I think that's a really healthy exercise for investors to do and, and really get you thinking about the important things that you should be focusing on. And those retained earnings, companies are using that money to make investments. Hopefully, they're going to get an equity, a capital return on those investments. They could pay down debt. And sometimes they're even repurchasing their own shares. And this is something that he talks about with respect to Apple and a really interesting discussion about buybacks and 
and Apple. Before we get to that, I want to talk about a section called Two Strings on Our Bow. I like how we title some of these sections. And sometimes when I read it through the first time, the letter, I don't quite get it. I'm going fast and I'm kind of trying to figure out, you know, getting my bearings and whatnot. But when I went back and read the letter the second time and I came back to the section, Two Strings on Our Bow, he's talking about conglomerates. And he first mentions that conglomerates are typically have a bad reputation on Wall Street, yet Berkshire is a conglomerate. But he says we're a little bit different. He mentions that most conglomerates like to wholly own all of the businesses in their company, their family of businesses. But at Berkshire, they're willing to sometimes buy a whole company, but sometimes just buy part of a company. And I believe those are the two strings he's talking about. And he's able to play his music with two strings, which has really been beautiful for shareholders. Do you want to talk about that section? Well, this was part of the, when I talked about the subtleties and like not a word out of place, you know, he says, he calls some of the the conglomerateurs colorful promoters. And even just using the word promoter is like, it's in SPACs that like that's what it's called the person who they when they get 20% of the shares that's like called the promote I don't think it's an accident that he's uses some of these terms like I think this is how he sort of quietly maybe calls out some of that behavior while at the same time making this letter so that you could read it in a hundred years and maybe the what it was called changed like maybe we don't have we don't call it a special purpose acquisition company anymore but it's called something else but the same concept still exists and so his takeaways, his lessons will will hold up for that. Like I think this this letter will age really well, uh, if I had to guess, because of those subtleties. But yeah, to go back to, like what he's saying is that he has he has a lot of optionality as a conglomerateur, whether it's to reinvest in his own business, whether to buy partial ownership of a business that he understands that perhaps is also buying back their shares, which is increasing and concentrating his ownership percentage. He can buy back his shares, which increases the remaining shareholders' concentration, or he can do a big acquisition of the entire company, which then will flow through to the operating income. He, he has a lot of tools in his toolbox to use, and he's always just evaluating what's the next best opportunity, what's my opportunity cost of, of this decision versus, you know, should I buy this or should I buy this? Or should I wait because maybe the, in the next round, there's going to be even more advantageous moves to make and I'm going to wish that I wouldn't have spent my money today. And I think that's just what he's thinking about all day long. Like, what do I, what's the next best use of this, this $1? And the amazing thing is, is that like, I think that he has a, the only word that comes to mind is pathological. And maybe that carries with it a negative connotation. And I don't mean it in a, in a negative way. But like, I think he has a compulsion to have every dollar allocated to where he thinks its best use is. And one of the data points that I use when I think about this is, if you remember back to, he had this bet with protege partners about whether a fund of funds would beat the S&P 500 over 10 years, right? And the way that they structured it, he put the money into, I believe, like a zero coupon bond that would be worth a million dollars in 10 years as a part of the, the charity payment. And it got to where I think with interest rates moving 
the bond appreciated so rapidly that he didn't like the price of it anymore. And he wanted to change out that bond, I think for maybe Berkshire shares, if I remember right. Well, here's what's amazing to me is that he, here it is, this charity bet. It's a million dollars, which rounds to like nothing for him. And it'd be kind of a pain to go back to protege and say, hey, can I change the kind of the collateral of this bet? But he does it because he can't stand to have that dollar in something that it, where it doesn't belong in his mind. And I think that that's true throughout the entire portfolio. Like he's looking at everything in a maniacal way to do the best, put that dollar where its best use is. And as a shareholder, like this is music to your ears, right? This is exactly the kind of behavior that you're looking for. And you want your capital allocator to be a maniac about having every dollar where it goes. That is such a great story. I mean, it, it reminds me of Steve Jobs obsessing over the Macintosh, the internal aesthetics of the Macintosh computer, where no one could even get into their Macintosh. I had a Macintosh when I was little. I don't think I ever looked inside the Macintosh, but he was obsessed with what, what it would look like inside the computer. And of course, this goes back to his stepfather, who was a carpenter and taught him to always think holistically about the aesthetics. And anyway, that, that's just a great story. And I, I love that Buffett is, no matter what the size, a million dollars, I mean, what is it to him? He's worried about the capital allocation. I think you're exactly right about the structure of Berkshire providing these options. And that's what Charlie and Warren like. They want to have the options. And they even say in the letter, he says, Charlie and I simply deploy your capital into whatever we believe makes the most sense. There's some pretty material tax implications as well for them. If you look at, especially like Berkshire Energy, they get a lot of credit from renewables and like their marginal tax rate, if I think is negative, if I remember right. Like, and so what do you, what do you do with that? Like if you can blend that with other businesses that are incurring taxes and reduce your taxable, your effective taxable rate across your entire corporate structure, like that's material money. And that's, so that's another part of the, of the structure that they've built that allows them to do some tax arbitrage. That's a good point. So the next section of the letter, Buffett talks about, he calls them the four jewels in this portfolio in Berkshire. The first one is insurance. The second one is 100% ownership of Burlington Northern Santa Fe. Then there's the 5.4% ownership of Apple, and then the 91% ownership of Berkshire Hathaway Energy. Let's just go through each of these real quickly. The, on the insurance side, the, he didn't spend a lot of time talking about insurance, but one thing he did mention was the amount of capital that the insurance operation at Berkshire has deployed, which is far more than its competitors. And it allows the company to invest more in equities than in bonds, whereas the competitors to Berkshire Hathaway in the insurance market are almost forced to invest in bonds because of their size and to be able to control risk, whereas he can go longer into equities. He also mentions that the operations are running so efficiently that the float, which is up to $138 billion, is essentially costless. This is another advantage of the Berkshire structure. This is a really important point. He doesn't talk about a lot in this letter. He has in the past, but this is a way to gain capital to make investments at a very low cost of capital. Yeah. I mean, this was the original negative interest rates was if you was float for him, right? It was profitable insurance underwriting that allowed a form of leverage 
for his equity purchases. It's amazing to watch how it's grown. I mean, I was I did a little bit of math on even Geico. And imagine this, like, you know, we think oh, I've been studying this company for a long time, whatever I'm looking at. He has a familiarity with Geico that extends for 70 years. He's he's known about the company. Yes. I mean, do you know anything to that level of like 70 years worth of of watching it and you know seeing it evolve, thinking about it for 70 years? Oh my God, what an advantage. So Geico started out like I think the first year it did two hundred thirty eight thousand dollars worth of business, and last year it did thirty five billion. That's a fifteen point four percent compounding growth rate for eighty three years. I mean, what an incredible phenomena for anything to grow from that starting point to be that big. Just simply amazing. But you're right; like it is a huge advantage, and I think an underappreciated advantage that he has a lot more flexibility on what to invest in than the typical insurance company when bonds are where they are today. If there are any headwinds on you know, bond prices moving up and really like creating losses for other insurance companies, they, they won't be able to afford to underwrite unprofitably, right? Because what's historically been with insurance is that you could afford to have a combined ratio a little above 100 because you knew you could make it up in your portfolio. So you would take a little bit of a loss to get the business, but to get the access to the money, and then you'd earn 6% on your bonds, and you, then it's, it's okay. Like You can still make some money. However, if you're in the hole on your bond portfolio and you're trying to underwrite, you can't afford to take losses in your underwriting side now. So, Which means you either have to raise prices or you lose business, one of those two things. And Berkshire is set up to be able to take advantage of both of those things, writing more business and writing more profitable business. I would expect, and I've, I've read this a fair number of places, that insurance rates right now are really hardening a lot. And I think a lot of it has to do with this, is that they, they can't afford to take underwriting losses right now because the returns are so anemic to begin with when bonds are giving you 1% or whatever negative in a lot of the world. You just simply can't afford it, so you have to push up the price of your your underwriting. You can't you can't subsidize with investment returns. Yeah, that's a good point. And the Burlington Northern Santa Fe hundred percent ownership. He doesn't talk a lot about that in this section, but he does mention that it has returned. And I was just looking for the number. I thought it wrote down. I think it's forty two billion dollars in dividends since they made the investment. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think it's somewhere in that neighborhood. On a what was it fifty. Billion dollar original purchase price. If I yeah, right. it's getting very close to the investments getting close to have paid back the amount of the initial stake in the business just through the dividends. So that's been a tremendous home run for shareholders. Then there's the 5.4% ownership of Apple and the 91% ownership of Berkshire. So in various times throughout Berkshire's history, he's had fun names for the different pillars in the business, or I can't remember some of the yeah. words he's used, but now he's using the four jewels. The inevitable, uh, yeah. one of them. Uh, yeah. So, you know, real quick on the, so we're 10 years on now and he has almost his entire purchase price back in returned capital through dividends. I think it's a, a healthy exercise to think through all of your investments and imagine the free cash flow of that business or owner's earnings or however you kind of want to decide where to draw the line. But think about like, how long would it take me to get paid back if I bought it today? 
And if it's a 50 times free cash flow, boy, like that's either if it stays where it is right now, that's going to be 50 years before I get paid back. Or is it 10 years? Or is it going to have to grow so insanely to shorten that 50 year duration? How confident am I in that, that that's going to happen? And what would have to happen to the underlying business and the economics to have the cash flow available to pay me back sooner than the 50 years that's implied by the starting price today. I think it's easy to sort of forget about that when we're, we're looking in a, in a kind of frothier market potentially. Yeah, that's a great question to ask. How many years is it going to take for this free cash flow to return the purchase price of the initial investment? Then Buffett moves on to a discussion about repurchasing shares. He talked about it a little bit at the beginning of the letter, but he comes back to talk about this interesting situation where he's repurchasing Berkshire shares while Apple is repurchasing its own shares. And in working in concert, how that is eventually, the the quote is, you indirectly own 10% more of Apple than in July of 2018 because of these two factors working together. I like this discussion. One thing I thought that was missing from this discussion was he talks about his own discipline in buying shares. He says, we're not going to buy Berkshire shares at any price. We're going to be disciplined and talks a little bit about how often in corporate America, CEOs aren't disciplined when they purchase shares. They purchase when it's high. And then when the stock goes low, they don't purchase, which is the opposite of what Warren's trying to do with Berkshire. But he doesn't mention Apple's discipline in buying shares. Are you concerned about that? Or what, what do you think? A couple things there. One was I had a little quibble. He says that the increase in ownership was costless. And that 10% increase from a 5% share erosion on both Apple and Berkshire. I quibble with that a little bit and that it wasn't costless. There's the opportunity cost of the capital that was used both at Apple to buy back shares and Berkshire to buy back their own shares. So if Berkshire had some other project that they could reinvest in internally or some other acquisition, and it was a higher return than what was anticipated from the Berkshire shares, then that should have been the right decision to make. Same thing for Apple. I think where a lot of uh, investors, they like to see share buybacks in that if they don't trust that management is going to deploy the capital in such a way that will create more earnings later. So if you have like a pretty good business, but maybe you're sort of at the tail end of how much could possibly be reinvested into it to grow, you to grow profitably, by the way. Anybody can grow. Like that's no feat. You can sell 80 cent dollars all day long. Anybody can do that. But to grow profitably, that requires quite a bit of skill. And if the the deploying of capital can be done in a way that's accretive long term, you rather have them reinvesting in the business than buying it back, especially usually if the price is high. So obviously, price is a huge determinant of whether buybacks are a good idea or not. In a little bit in the defense of the typical S&P 500 CEO, their stock only gets cheap when there's a lot of uncertainty in the world and the risks to their business are higher. And that's a time when you probably should be conserving capital to make sure that you survive. So, And especially if you came into it a little bit over your skis, maybe you had debt, maybe you had underinvested in your business along the way, you likely are not in a position of strength to take advantage of a, of a weak share price and do the buybacks when they'd be most accretive. That's where I have a bias towards very conservative balance sheets 
sometimes called lazy balance sheets as if they're not working hard enough like they're not taking on enough debt to really like you know whip that mule but it's for exactly this reason is that i want a management team to have options when you know the the s hits the fan i want them to have different tools at their disposal and that typically means a lot of liquidity and a very lazy looking balance sheet and not a lot of debt so it's are you optimizing for efficiency or resilience and i tend towards more being attracted to resilience. That's a great discussion because even Buffett says that when he looks at share repurchases, he's looking at price, but he's also looking at ensuring that Berkshire has ample funds for any opportunities or problems that may show up. So it's the opportunities and it's the problems. And I think Boeing's a great example. We saw when things were going great in aerospace, they were buying up their shares. They The stock ran up 90% one year. It was the highest performer in the Dow. And when you look at it from where we're standing now, after the COVID pandemic and the collapse in travel, you realize in a cyclical industry, it's kind of hindsight 2020, but you say, what was management thinking in a cyclical industry not to have a stronger balance sheet? Things always go up and down in in aerospace. And yet they were just right there and Wall Street was cheering them on, buy it back, buy it back. And they didn't end up having the balance sheet they wanted to have going into a very severe crisis. Well, I mean, this is this is the myopic behavior that is is kind of endemic today. Um, and I'm, I find it very distasteful myself, but the incentives are what they are right now. And if you're a, a Fortune 500 CEO, and your tenure is going to be, on average, I think four and a half years, five years, it doesn't pay for you to make that long-term decision that makes results today look bad and for a better future. And so, I mean, we, we get exactly what we're, we're reaping exactly what we're sowing with the incentive structures. And a lot of times buybacks are unfortunately just used to mask share dilution they'll buy back the same amount that ends up getting issued to management and employees so that the float doesn't really change yet it's a transfer of ownership from current owners current shareholders to the people who work inside the company which not necessarily is wrong i mean i think there's some arguments to be made that stock options are not the worst thing in the world for trying to incentivize and get people going in the same directions that would benefit shareholders but it's really always a matter of degrees also. Like how much of the company are you giving away every year and then using the cash to buy it back and often at a very inflated rate, but you you can't show that the float is increasing every year. Otherwise, people start to ask questions. So you just keep it where it is. But meanwhile, lots of value is walking out the door. I think there's a whole nother show there for you and I on incentives and, and some of the challenges there around stock options. That's a great point though. The next section of the letter, Buffett titles it A Tale of Two Cities. And again, this is one of those things where I just kind of blew through the title the first time. I came back again. I asked myself, what is he talking which what cities is is he talking about here? Because the first part of the story he tells, it sounds like he's talking about Los Angeles and Washington, DC, because he talks about seize candy and how he's really talking about small businesses that grow into bigger businesses and what that means to America. And this is sort of the optimistic part of the letter that you were referring to. And he wants to shine a light on some of these entrepreneurs and some of the just roll up your sleeves and get it done attitude in America. And he's talking about Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. Los Angeles means seize candy, Washington, D.C. being 
where Leo and Lillian Goodwin started Geico. But to the bigger point I wanted to mention is he goes on to talk about other cities. And I think you're exactly right, Jake, when you say every word has its place and its meaning. There's no random word in this letter because at one point he says, when you fly over Knoxville or Omaha, because he ends up talking about Knoxville with the Clayton Homes and with the with the pilot travel centers. And he ends up talking about Omaha with Jack Ringwalt and Indemnity. He says, when you fly over, tip your hat to some of these people. And I think this was his way of saying, hey, let's not forget about middle America. Let's not forget about the Midwest. I know there's a lot going on in this country that's happening on the coast, the Silicon Valley and Wall Street and innovation and all this stuff, but there's stuff happening in the middle. And I just thought that was wonderful. Yeah, this is probably my favorite part of the letter. And like you said, like the optimism really, the optimism and a long timeline of thinking about really just the historical anomaly that is America, the wealth that's been created through harnessing the capitalist system and getting the most out of human talent. I really thought this was terrific. You know, we're a little bit of a nation divided right now. I don't think that's a very controversial thing to say. And I think he's was looking to unify it in a way that, you know, subtly, but, you know, talking about from West Coast with C's, East Coast, Geico, and then also the middle as well. And that maybe, you know, never bet against America is is how that section closed. I think that's right. And I think it's a very, you know, if you have kids, you kind of want to believe that, right? Like you want to believe that there's better days ahead, even though today feels like, gosh, we have so many problems and it doesn't seem like we have the mechanisms to solve a lot of them. But at the end of the day, it's hopefully it's going to get better. And you know, here is the long sweep of history that has been part of his lifetime and how he's seen it get better. And I just love this part. I thought it was great. Yeah. And he also mentions that the ideal of our country, that we're committed to progress toward a more perfect union. We're not claiming that it's perfect. It's never going to be perfect, but we're always moving towards a more perfect union. And I thought that was just a wonderful touch too, to remind us of this journey we're on, that it is going to be a struggle. It's not going to be easy or perfect. It's going to be something we all have to work together towards. And I think you're right. This was his way of reminding us all in a time of division, political division, that we're all in this together. We're all part of this experiment and never bet against America. So in closing, Buffett talks about these five categories of shareholders. I never heard him talk about these five categories before. They, they make perfect sense. He talks about himself as being one, being the founder. And then there's institutional investors, but they can be both active or an index fund. So those are the next two categories. Then he talks about individual investors, and he mentions two different kinds of individual investors, some that are coming in and out of the stock. He likens them to an active investor. Then there's the individual investor who's there for the long term, who's there to buy and hold. And he has a special affinity towards that investor. And this gets back to when he's repurchasing shares, he's repurchasing from someone. I think he's he's hoping it's not that person in, in the fifth group. What did you think of this section? Yeah, I really like this. Uh, I think, and I think this goes back to that sort of partnership approach mentality, and thinking about, you know, well, who are my partners and what do they want? There's a saying that you get the shareholders that you deserve, right? And he uses Philip Fisher's sort of analogy from 1958 about a business. The shareholders are—it's like running a restaurant, and you can choose: do you want to be a burger and and 
you know, soda place or do you want to be, you know, haughty French cuisine? Now, you have to stick with what you whatever it is that you're you're doing because the shareholders have a certain expectation, right? And if if they come in for French cuisine and they're served a hamburger, they're not going to be happy. And likewise, if they came in for hamburgers and they get a French cuisine bill, they're not going to be happy. So he's very comfortable with the, the clientele that he's attracted, the partners that he's attracted. It's important to think about as an investor, like who are my other shareholders? And you know how quick are they to be dancing by the door waiting for the clock to strike midnight? Are they, you know, are they just momentum kind of speculators? You think about a, a stock like Tesla today, and I haven't looked at recently, but at one point they were turning over the amount of volume on a given day was like 11 or 12% of the entire market cap was turning over every single day. I don't know which restaurant that is, what the right analogy is, um, but is that the group that you want to be a part of that's seeing that much volume? Whereas, I mean, I have to imagine Berkshire's got to be, I mean, it's almost catatonic, the amount of volume relative to the size of the company. So yeah, I think it's a great point and probably something that we don't think often enough about is just being careful, like who are our co-owners of this business? And are we are we happy to be a part of that group or not? Exactly. And like the fact that Buffett and Munger are constantly using all of their tools, like this share, shareholder letter, their shareholder meeting to try to communicate to people to attract the best partners they can. And at one point they say they liken it to, there's just a certain number of seats at the Berkshire table and we like the people who are sitting there. And if someone does get up, we want someone of equal quality to, to sit down. Shout out to Larry Cunningham, Professor Lawrence, who talks about this a lot in Quality Shareholders, I believe is the book. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but he's talking about a lot of these things. The competitive advantage, actually, that can be from having the right people in your restaurant. So Buffett ends the letter with a little surprise. Do you want to talk about that? And did that, did that surprise you? Because it did me. <laughs> um, I'm not like terribly surprised. So the, the surprise is that Charlie will be at the next meeting, right? And it was, it was a bit of a shock that he wasn't at the last meeting. However, he's done, he's done a few different Zooms now online, you know, one being the Daily Journal meeting last week or week before. So Munger knows how to get onto a Zoom. So like, there's not really an excuse that he can't show up for the, the shareholder meeting, right? But I believe that Warren is going to travel to LA and, and they'll be together then again on, the, on a stage or something like that. So that's pretty special given that you know, Mr. Buffett's 90 and Munger is 97. The two of them, and you know, we kind of missed them for a year last year. And you know, it was to me like the energy that Warren had last year, maybe it was because the, you know, you're, he's in this giant stadium all by himself or just like some camera crew. Right. And it's for the previous, however many years it had been packed with people. And like, there's gotta be just an incredible energy when you're coming out to sit there and take questions. And then you're by yourself. Like that's, of course, there's going to be a letdown and no Munger there. Like that was the big thing. And so the two of them play off of each other so well with you know, Warren's kind of plucky optimism. And then Charlie gets to sort of be the heavy guy and like make funny quips and, you know, like call BS on things that maybe Warren doesn't, doesn't need to because, because Charlie's there to do it with him. I'm really looking forward to getting them both back again. And like, 
it's almost a privilege that we missed it for a year because then it makes you appreciate it when you get it back the next year. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to having them both back on the stage. And and then the other thing is last year, Greg Abel was on the stage with Warren. Doesn't bring the same energy that, that Munger does and they don't quite play off each other. But Greg was there in the, last year. And the nice thing about that is it's the next generation. They're stepping up. They're coming to the table. They're answering questions. We're getting to know them. And a lot of people asked last year, why was Ajit Jain, who runs the insurance operation, why was he not on the stage as well? And there wasn't a great answer for that, as I recall, last year. But this year, he is going to be on the stage. So I think that's another pleasant surprise that we're going to have Charlie and Warren, but also Greg Abel and Ajit Jain, who represent the next generation. Yeah, I would. Um, I wouldn't mind if... We had Todd and Ted as well at some point. I'd kind of like to hear a little bit more from them, but all in due time, I guess. Berkshire goes on its own on its own timeline, right? So you just it certainly you does. Have to go with it. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun breaking down the Berkshire letter. I really appreciate you coming on the Good Life and talking this through. And thanks for coming back on the show. Where can people find out more about you, Jake? Oh, I'm not too hard to find these days. Uh, sometimes to my my own chagrin, uh, but. Twitter, I have uh, I'm on there probably a little bit too much, but it's at Farnham Jake One. Then my investment company is Farnham-Street.com, and I do the Value After Hours podcast with Toby Carlisle and Bill Brewster, two of my my good buddies, and that's a little bit more of just getting together once a week and chewing the fat and having some fun and calling each other out, and then. Yeah. And then I have a book that came out a couple of years ago that it's called The Rebel Allocator. And a lot of the things actually discussed in there are have to do with cap allocation and, and a lot of things that we talked about today. I tried to build up a framework from the ground of individual unit business transactions with a customer all the way up through kind of corporate finance of buybacks and dividends. And really what I wanted to do was give one, give uh, new managers or maybe even existing managers who hadn't gotten training on this, the basics and some of the subtleties of cap, good cap allocation. Uh, and then two was to hopefully maybe inspire young people to be more appreciative of the capitalist system and how it's provided so many great things for us. I mean, hopefully, I mean, at this point with enough good reviews and the nice fan mail that I get occasionally, I think I might've hit the mark a little bit on those two goals, but you know, it feels good to hopefully have made like some little dent in that 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 fight for um, you know good cap allocation and what it can mean for society and how it's how it runs. Yeah, I highly recommend the Value After Hours podcast. It's a lot of fun. It's a little, it's freewheeling. It's topics, very timely topics, and you guys just have great discussion. And then the the book, The Capital Allocator. You and I had a discussion about it on the Good Life. I'll put a link up in the show notes if anyone's interested. We talk about that novel for about an hour and break it down. It's really a lot of fun. I recommend the book too. It's just a great educational read and also entertaining. So Jake, thanks for coming back on the show. Sean, always a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to our time together. So it's uh, it was a lot of fun today. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.